Welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a journey into mystery and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, happy to be here with you so that together we can create a culture of wisdom, love, and beauty. Auspicious interbeing to you and yours, my friends, today we consider the dangerous wisdom of Adam Smith, Captain Capitalism himself. I've been wanting to consider the capitalist system for some time, but it's no small topic, and it's not easy to contemplate with care. Some people love capitalism, some people hate it, some people think it's the only choice we have. The trouble is that economics pervades our life. It has an ungodly influence on us, and we need to think through some of it, actually think. This will become a series of dialogues and contemplations to help us approach the dangerous wisdom we need right now if we want to help ourselves and our world. The first dialogue will come out next week, and this week we'll consider a few important and even surprising things to get us started. I say surprising because in preparation for this contemplation, I went back and read some more Adam Smith. I haven't read much Adam Smith since my undergraduate years, and I wasn't asked to read very much back then. He's not exactly the most brilliant philosopher, even though he's rather perceptive and clever in some ways. He's not even really a philosopher so much as a professor of philosophy, and that kind of writing rarely interests me. But I did go back and read more of Adam Smith's work, and what shocked me was both the nature of his ignorance and the nature of some of his insights. Some of the things we'll consider from Smith's own writing sound like they could have come from Karl Marx. Other things he wrote seem quite confused, and some other things seem sadly pessimistic. Adam Smith's writing seems perfectly symptomatic of the dominant culture. By thinking through economic ideas from a philosophical viewpoint, we can come to a little better understanding of the dominant culture, its influence on the world, how we got to this tragic historical moment, and how we can potentially create a shift. As I said, because of the importance of this subject matter and the central role of capitalism in our lives, the central role of capitalism in the fate of the planet right now, we'll have a series of contemplations and interviews about all of the details that we can get into. We're not going to go deep, 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 but we're going to go pretty deep. And we're going to try to creatively imagine ourselves forward into a truly wiser, more loving, more beautiful world. And we're starting with Adam Smith, since he's so strongly associated with capitalism. Now first, let's acknowledge a few things. One thing we need to acknowledge is that economics may seem boring to most of us. We're going to try to avoid boring by staying in touch with the love wisdom 
and the fascinating cultural issues that I think will prove interesting and inspiring. Second, let's acknowledge how reactive people can get when they discuss politics and economics. And even people who have thought very little about economics proper can have strong opinions about capitalism. But I think even the staunchest defenders of capitalism will find themselves agreeing with some of the key suggestions we'll consider together in this series, especially the first two contemplations we'll do, which will be interrupted by an interview. And I think most people will find a lot of common ground, at least some common ground, but I think there's more common ground than we realize. And over the course of the series, we'll consider some, I think, pretty fascinating cultural history, too, things that are going on even today, the history that's unfolding, and also some things from the past that I I think are so interesting and worth contemplating deeply, as deeply as we can go. This is not going to be a graduate seminar in Adam Smith. We're not going to get academic here, but we, we will try to think carefully. And we'll do everything we can to cultivate this common ground so that capitalists and anti-capitalists, if, there are, if, if you may consider yourself such a thing, you may not like to be anti-anything, but if you are pro-capitalism and if you, on the other hand, want some alternative, maybe you're a critic of capitalism in, in some way, or maybe you would like to see something different, or you don't, maybe you don't know what could be different. But somehow all of us could begin to relax into some of the most essential things that we really can agree on. To get our contemplation going, it seems helpful to think of economics as having two aspects that have become somewhat divided, as if they're two completely different things, but they're two aspects of the same thing. One aspect of economics is we could say, descriptive and analytical. And I think that's where we should put Adam Smith to a certain degree, in an important way. He just described something. It's very descriptive. Not inventive. Adam Smith didn't invent capitalism. Rather, he describes for us what was starting to happen in his context. This descriptive and analytical aspect of economics has become so elaborated that now we think of economics as rather complicated and even scientific, you see, because it's so analytic in its description now. There are various reasons why this happened and why it has become dominant, and it's a potentially complex story, but let's consider several basic drivers that make economics look the way it does now, which is rather mathematical and seemingly scientific. One of the reasons economics seems so mathematical has to do with the fact that all the disciplines in the dominant culture, all the intellectual disciplines, developed, we could say, physics envy, including philosophy, by which I mean the activity of the professors of philosophy, not philosophy in its deeper meaning. Alan Watts once suggested that professors of philosophy would probably wear lab coats if they thought they could get away with it or at least some of them would. I know personally some of them who would not. Because of this physics envy, you know, everybody loves the success and the power that physics seems to have. 
And because of this physics envy, economics could only really legitimize itself by trying to look like a science. That's just the way the dominant culture went. In the case of capitalist economics, we find an incredible drive to orient ourselves toward delusion as precisely as possible, rather than even imprecisely orienting ourselves toward wisdom. That's the kind of irony. Where economics is, is this science, it's called the dismal science, it should be called the delusionary science. We want to be as precise as possible about delusion, rather than even being a little wobbly, but trying to orient toward wisdom, love, and beauty. That we won't do. And in this regard, we find that the plot thickens, and we can discern another level of legitimization going on by presencing and presenting itself as a science, putting on that mask of science. Economics doesn't just legitimize itself, but it legitimizes the whole economic and political system that dominates our lives. Now that itself has a few aspects. The most shocking aspect reveals the foolishness of the whole endeavor. Economists like to keep their framework in equations, complicated equations. The more complicated, the better. They like to keep their framework in those complicated equations because if they put the framework into ordinary language, I think we'd all laugh them out of the room. Now, why do I suggest that? Because the equations of economics as we know it, if, if we talk to economists and we look and ask some questions about what's going on, well, those equations treat us like a bunch of sociopaths. They create a false creature, a fantasy monster called Homo economicus. That's the twist on Homo sapiens. We're not Homo sapiens, we're Homo economicus. And Homo economicus has one interest, himself. And I think it's okay to put the gender in there as a kind of certain masculine thing going on here, perhaps. Homo economicus doesn't really even have friends or family. He only has ways of satisfying his own self-interest. And he tries to do this as rationally as possible. Now, we know very well that we aren't a bunch of sociopaths. Otherwise, the psychological definition would mean nothing. So the economists don't tell us they think of us as sociopaths. In fact, probably many of them would protest. If you have a friend who studied economics or has a PhD in economics, I bet they'll say, no, this is ridiculous. This philosopher doesn't know what he's talking about. But really, ask those questions. Well, how do you treat us? Are we self-interested, maximizers, operating on the basis of rationality and as perfect information as we can get? But they don't think, it might not even occur to them that that's what the equations mean. Really, they just do the math and make their predictions. It's just about plugging away at the equations, not even questioning the underlying reality. This, of course, was part of David Bohm's critique of the way quantum mechanics is done in the mainstream. You just calculate. Don't ask what's going on down there. By habit, by association, this style of economics infects our consciousness both our conscious mind and our unconscious mind. 
and we start to think of economics as not just an analysis of yet another process. Instead, all that math and that seeming credibility makes it appear, in a certain sense, as if capitalism itself must be scientific, as if capitalism is just in accord with reality. By implication, what doesn't accord with capitalism doesn't accord with reality. Now that leaves us stuck. It chokes our imagination as well as our ethical sensibility. And we'll try to get to some of these things. We're not going to be able to get to everything in this first contemplation. But we'll get to a lot in the first two that we'll do. Now, the capitalists and the financiers use all that complicated mathematics to make it seem as if ordinary people couldn't possibly understand economics. And so we had better just leave it to them to figure out how to move the world forward. The level of complication is such that physicists, nuclear physicists, and high-level science and math people have been employed to build stock trading technology and to create complicated mathematics that can get used to mask rather silly con jobs. Now, that's part of what happened in the 2007-2008 crash. We had some pretty crude scams hidden behind fairly complicated mathematical maneuvers. And in general, we the people get told we aren't smart enough to understand all of this stuff, but the fact is the people running the system don't understand very much either. And we only need all this complicated stuff because of the insanity of the system. If it were rooted in reality, it would be complex, but probably not half as complicated. The mask of sophistication and complexity gives us the false impression that the system has some kind of scientific basis. But this isn't true. It's a rather utopian and foolish basic concept layered over with a lot of complicated mathematical and ideological rationalizations. We could perform a complex mathematical analysis of a magic trick, and that wouldn't make the magic real. We could perform a complicated mathematical analysis of slavery, and that wouldn't make slavery a good idea. That latter recognition touches on the more primal question of economics, which is a philosophical question, not a mathematical or scientific one in the narrow sense. Now, this is the other aspect of economics. We were suggesting that economics has two aspects, two faces. There's this complicated mathematical scientific side, the descriptive analytical side, and then there's the other side. The other aspect is the one we tend to ignore or rationalize. From this other perspective, economics has to do with the philosophical question of how we live together, how we coordinate our lives together and take care of the home we share. It's an even deeper question, really, is what are we? And what is this world? And how do we live well here together? And those basic issues have nothing to do with equations. They 
are primary and far more important than the economics that wins Nobel Prizes. And in relation to all of this, one of the first things to recognize about Adam Smith is that he didn't, he did not, did not sit around thinking deeply and then suddenly say to us all, here's a really good idea. This is going to blow your minds. Nobody's ever heard of this. I'm going to propose we organize our relationships around something I'm going to call capitalism. Now, here's what we're going to do. That's not how it happened. Nor did Adam Smith arrive on earth as a prophet sent from God or a theologian who discovered capitalism in the Bible or on the third tablet that nobody mentioned that Moses dropped on his way down the mountain. That's not where he found it. In fact, Adam Smith didn't even use the word capitalism. Rather, what he did was critique certain aspects of what we now refer to as the mercantile system, and he described something that he saw developing in its place. No one should claim he advocated capitalism because he derived it on the basis of wisdom. Even capitalism's proponents can't call it wise. As far as Smith's descriptive work, we're going to suggest that he, in fact, misunderstood what he was describing. And we'll try to clarify that. Maybe a little bit here. It's probably going to have to come a little bit later. But he, did not, he got it wrong. He thought he was describing one thing, and we're going to suggest, nope, that's not what he was describing. And unfortunately, he endorsed that emerging system, even though he admits some of its most basic and disturbing faults. Now, I don't want to trash talk Adam Smith. He seems like a clever fellow. When you read him, you know, he seems, he's not a genius, but he's clever. And he had some degree of respect for the wisdom tradition. That's nice. And there are times when it really does seem that he genuinely wanted to help his fellow human beings. He was actively engaged in the intellectual life of his context, it seems, with the aim of helping to establish a little bit more justice. Now, at the same time, he deserves some critical reflection, even if it seems important to put things rather bluntly at times. Because the system we inherited, in part on the basis of his endorsement, does not accord with reality. And we need to think that through. One way we might begin involves trying to imagine a little bit of the world that Smith lived in, if we could imagine ourselves into that world. When we read Smith and when we consider some of the historical context, we realize Smith had a genuine concern with a problem that some of us have relatively little, little connection with, especially if we live in the dominant culture, and that's the problem of scarcity. Now, even in the dominant culture, some people do face scarcity. And certainly there are parts of the world today 
where scarcity is a serious issue. People in the so-called developed states, uh, uh, by and large, a, a lot of them, have relatively easy access to food, water, and countless conveniences. Now, not all the food is healthy. Not all the water is free of pollution. And many of the conveniences are dubious. Nevertheless, I think especially a lot of people listening here and contemplating together, a lot of us live in a very different world. Smith would have seen a different kind of poverty around him, and he would have seen people sometimes struggling just to eat. Now, maybe not so bad in, in his country. I saw in one of the papers that I was reading as part of the thinking through that time period and thinking through it, Adam, Adam Smith, that one scholar was arguing that anywhere up to 10 to 20% of the French population, not too far uh, before Smith's time and maybe overlapping his time, they were too malnourished to work. They couldn't really do anything. That's pretty significant. And so he would have seen people sometimes, even in, in if things were worse, a little worse in France, but even in his context, he would have seen people sometimes struggling just to eat. And he would have seen that very basic things were not always easy to get. And related to that, Smith, in his famous book, Wealth of Nations, he gives us what is now a pretty famous example of how capitalism can overcome the problem of scarcity. And it's pretty early in the book. It's a funny example for some of us in the 21st century because what Smith discusses is a pin factory. Now, at this point, we take pins for granted. You know, this would be like pins for pinning your clothes. Uh, many of us have little use for pins. We might use safety pins. I, that's not the kind of pin he was talking about. But either way, whatever kind of pins, if you do any, any sort of seamstressing or tailoring, you can get pins for next to nothing. It's so easy. And what Smith is talking about is a transition place because there were still people who made pins by hand in an artisan way. And if you had to make a pin by hand, it, you would find out that it requires skill. You know, it's not so easy to make a pin and to make a lot of pins every day. If you don't have the skill of making pins you're not going to make very many. If somebody shows you how the process at least goes, here are the steps, this is what you have to do, you could maybe make a few in a day, but, but not a lot. And so, generally speaking, before the kind of division of labor that Smith did not also, he didn't invent that, before that, the, people had to rely on artisan pin makers. And you're not going to have many of those in your little town, back then in the 1700s in Scotland and England. And so there's going to be a scarcity, and the wealthy will always be able to get their pins first. They can pay a premium. They also have power and position in society. And so this is going to add to the scarcity of pins. You just don't have enough in production. And we find then Smith accepting an idea that goes back at least to John Locke, in our contemplation on horse magic, horse medicine, horse mystery, we looked at Locke's idea of value coming from labor. Because a lot of people will associate the labor theory of value with Smith, 
and uh, well, maybe, maybe not. Sometimes people sort of associate it with more strongly with Marx, um, division of labor, the labor theory of value. It depends on who you're reading or asking, but certainly this idea that labor is what brings value goes back at least to Locke, if not earlier. It depends on how we're thinking about it. If we're looking for textual evidence, it's certainly easy to find it in John Locke. Now, we sort of made fun of it. I won't read the passage in the goofy English accent that I used last time, because it was just part of teasing John Locke. He's another professor of philosophy rather than a philosopher. And we considered a passage from his second treatise on government. And here's what he says in normal voice. He says, It is labor indeed that puts the difference of value on everything. And let anyone consider what the difference is between an acre of land planted with tobacco or sugar, sown with wheat or barley, and an acre of the same land lying in common without any husbandry upon it. And he will find that the improvement of labor makes the far greater part of the value. Now, I think we'll skip the rest. Maybe I'll put it in the, in the show notes, the rough transcript, maybe. And because we're going to come back to this, but the idea that Locke outlines here is that it's labor that really provides value. And we suggested that his view in this passage seems ignorant in many ways. For one thing, Locke was a townie who saw the soil as passive rather than abundant and alive, and having its own processes and purposes as part of a sacred order. He didn't see that. And in our time, we know how wrong he got it, even from a strictly scientific perspective, to say nothing of a properly holistic love wisdom. The soil is not passive and and dead. He's just scientifically and spiritually off. And I think he's off spiritually and philosophically because he's a professor, not a philosopher. I think that's, that's at least some measure of it. Now, at the same time, we can sense a partially correct opinion That's how Plato describes our ignorance when our ignorance has some resemblance to wisdom or carries some fragment of wisdom in it. And I know this is, some people will be offended that I'm uh, speaking this way about John Locke because he was a bright guy. Uh, I'm just saying that we need to be a little critical. And I think it's actually good to laugh a little bit at his silliness. So there's a little wisdom in what he's saying because we do value skillful effort and skillful effort can make something beautiful and useful. And we should note that skillful effort is not mere effort. Locke fails to emphasize this. And Smith, in fact, goes so far as to reject it in a certain way, in a kind of tragic sense. Because what Smith does is he says, well, we can break down the skill of making pins so that it requires basically no skill at all. We just functionally eliminate skill from the process. Now, he says that an unskilled person who has to make pins could scarcely make 20 in a day. And if you didn't know what you were doing, I know it might seem hard to believe, but you, you know, there's, you, you've got nothing but metal, and you've got to figure out how to turn that metal into a pin. And he's saying an expert could probably make more than that, but they, they can't make even hundreds. Even an expert couldn't make hundreds of pill, uh, pins a day. But Smith says that he saw a small operation of 10 people who divided up pin making into tasks that essentially required no skill at all. And he says this one group of 10 people could make 48,000 
pins in a day. That's kind of crazy when you think about it. That, that people living in some town or village somewhere went from having a few artisan people making pins, and at max they could make maybe a hundred or so a day, maybe a few hundred, and now you've got ten people who can make 48,000. It's kind of mind-boggling. It's a funny example. It's, it's a famous example. You can talk about the pin factory at parties, and some people will know it, and other people will think, wow, that's really cool that you know about that history. I mean, you have to make it entertaining. I'm not guaranteeing you fun, laughs, and fame as a, as a philosopher of economics. But the thing that's funny about it is that it takes away the possibility that people could become artisans at their work and find meaning and engagement in their work. So we take away that possibility. You're not going to feel that, hey, I'm making something that people need. And as a result, we skill is lost. Artisan skill is lost. The meaning of our work is broken down a little bit more, but we get more pins than we know what to do with, which is what we have today. I can't even imagine how many pins are in landfills. And it suggests a profound disruption to the way the world functions, but Smith doesn't notice that. You know, I mean, and some of it you can't blame him. He, how could he think forward to what we've got today, where there are probably more pins in a single Amazon warehouse than the entire nation of England and Scotland, nations of England and Scotland in his time? Uh, you know, it's so easy to get them. It's ridiculous. And we have an overabundance of junk. So Smith didn't invent the labor theory of value, and he didn't invent the idea of the division of labor. We already had the idea of, we, we see it at least in Locke, and probably earlier than that, we could do some uh, forensic work there, some ar archaeology of our consciousness and find out. And then we see that there's also this division of labor people are already doing. What he did was he embraced these two things as a way to improve people's lives. The idea is that if we could take the same model and apply it broadly, then we would solve the problem of scarcity. We'd have all the pins we need, but of course the idea is we didn't also have food and shoes and other things. Smith seems to have valued agriculture in particular, and he likely thought that maybe we would have all the food we would need one day if we just did this the right way. Now, ten years before he published The Wealth of Nations, though, there was a major riot that erupted in England because of bad harvests. But overall, England was doing better at agriculture in some key ways, better compared to its own history and better compared to some places in Europe, like we mentioned France. There's a fellow named Jethro Tull. He had invented the seed drill. And then there was what's called the Norfolk four-course system that had evolved. And because of those, the population was able to grow. Now, people were, were, you know, they weren't starving. It wasn't exactly like there wasn't any scarcity because, again, it had a major riot just 10 years before The Wealth of Nations was published. So it was while he was writing, he could have reflected on it. And so we could think, on the one hand, Smith might have had high hopes. And at the same time, food production was struggling to keep up with population growth, and things would in various ways get worse 
from probably that that those food riots all the way until guano and finally the fuller industrialization of agriculture with fossil fuels including chemical fertilizers that was the key guano is is bird and bat poop uh, lots of it came from the americas so that sort of saved degraded soils before people were able to industrialize the agriculture process so they weren't living well with the land really not really and they needed the resources from the new world otherwise who knows what would have happened in europe if they didn't get that boost and then they, we all needed the chemicals and the fossil fuels as part of what was going on with agriculture in england and elsewhere there was this enclosure process maybe you've heard about that that made things worse for the poor and rather worse for all of us in several ways uh and so the idea is that the uh, there was a common land that people could were free to use and people uh, other people started to close that land off especially first the landed gentry the aristocracy and then other farms began to do that now obviously in an unequal society the rich will eat better than the poor but the commons before this enclosure the commons had provided the poor with supplemental food as well as with wood for heating and maybe more importantly the commons or let's say equally importantly the commons provided an ongoing relationship with nature by enclosing those ecologies they became unavailable to the poor which meant a disconnection from nature both in its spiritual and its ecological presence and that's it's so it's not just about the resources that people were getting it's not just that they could go in and and harvest berries and harvest some wood and stay warm and have more to eat there's a relationship a spiritual and ecological presence in these ecologies and and people lost that and karl marx apparently had a kind of conversion experience like an intellectual awakening when he did some research on this very issue in his own time and he found out in his time that over 80% of prosecutions in prussia in the early 1840s had to do with common people taking wood from formerly common lands that had been privatized that had been enclosed 80% of the prosecutions were a consequence of this enclosure process now there's a famous anonymous poem that sums up the evil of enclosing the commons in a rather humorous way and the poem goes like this the law locks up the man or woman who steals the goose from off the common but lets the greater felon loose who steals the common from the goose now what i love about that poem is that it includes non-human beings as the victims of the crime the process that drives capitalism steals from geese from bears from beaver from bees it steals from countless sentient beings including humans this is how capitalism creates profit this poem nails it in his time adam smith would have seen people facing sometimes severe scarcity of various kinds including food scarcity and general inequality 
And he may have had a genuine concern about how to increase production so as to better provide for everyone. And he may have even harbored some inclination to think about how to put all those rural people to work as they got shut out of the common lands and as agriculture began to require fewer laborers. This process made labor available for things like making pins without the need for much skill or creative intelligence. Can, can you sense that, that wave that is happening? You get people thrown off the common land. Now, they can't make it. And then also, there's labor-saving devices that are moving into agriculture. And so the, you've got people who can't survive, and then also some of them are just not needed. So now where are they going to go? They go into the cities to see if they can find work. And, oh, hey, you don't have to know anything. We'll put you in the pin factory. Don't need any skill. These people had lived a life of having to know at least something about the land. Having skill at what they did. And now they're brought in, they don't have to have any skill. And they don't have to live with the spiritual and ecological presence of the land. But I do think this is an aspect of Smith that we should have some compassion for. You know, he seems to have wanted to help solve this problem of scarcity and help facilitate a way for people to find work that could give them wages that would in turn allow them to improve their quality of life. It's the capitalist story even today. But sadly, this is an example of Smith's ignorance. And he blunders in several ways. And that might sound strong, so let's put it conservatively as a question. Is this the proper way to diagnose the problem of scarcity? Did, did he do this the right way? And whether it is or isn't a good diagnosis, is capitalism the proper prescription to help people live healthy and meaningful lives? And we're going to come back to the diagnosis. It's really important to get that right, but we're going to put some of our questioning of it into other contemplations. Now, for now, what we want to do is focus on Smith's dangerous wisdom as opposed to his dangerous ignorance. And that dangerous wisdom shows up in at least two important and deeply interrelated ways. The first aspect of Smith's dangerous wisdom will lead us to question his whole project, which we could think of as a key aspect of his diagnosis. And the second will lead us to question his prescription now, we're going to find that Adam Smith himself didn't really believe in his own diagnosis or the prescription he recommended. Now, that's a bit shocking in some ways, though maybe it should come as a relief. Maybe everyone who harbors even the vaguest suspicions about capitalism can breathe a sigh of relief and say, okay, maybe I'm not crazy. Maybe I'm not some terrible person for thinking we have some deep problems here. And maybe it's not so foolish to ask tough questions. If Adam Smith didn't even really believe in all of this, maybe I'm just not so crazy because I don't either. Or at least I'm not sure. Now, some other time when we get a little further into challenging his diagnosis, we'll begin to understand maybe why he endorses something he doesn't really believe in. We'll maybe have hints of that even now, but maybe we can 
think through it further. But what we need to get clear on is why endorsing capitalism leaves even Adam Smith seeming incoherent. If this is the guy we so strongly associate with capitalism, and if even he didn't really find it a wise and virtuous way of organizing our lives, shouldn't that give us pause? After all, when something fails the test of being wise and virtuous, we have to conclude it has some significant ignorance and corruption in it. Now let's begin thinking about that by thinking about the title of Adam Smith's famous description of what we have come to call capitalism. He called his book An Inquiry into the Nature and Causes of the Wealth of Nations. Well, what is the proper wealth of nations? What is our true wealth? Over time, we've become so infected with certain cultural habits and ideas that we can't always see them clearly, and thus we can't see our own situation clearly. That can make a challenge to answer these basic questions. Before Adam Smith wrote his inquiry into the nature and causes of the wealth of nations, he wrote about ethics in a book called The Theory of Moral Sentiments. Since he had his attention on ethics, I think that helped him make some more skillful philosophical suggestions in that book. For instance, he asks us, quote, What institution of government could tend so much to promote the happiness of mankind as the general prevalence of wisdom and virtue? All government is but an imperfect remedy for the deficiency of these. Whatever beauty, therefore, can belong to civil government upon account of its utility must in a far superior degree belong to these. Well, that's a pretty clear statement, one that takes its cue from the wisdom traditions. Whatever our philosophical, religious, or spiritual orientation, if we practice in or identify with a venerable tradition of wisdom, love, and beauty, that tradition will agree that nothing can secure the peace, happiness, freedom, and general well-being of a culture or its citizens better than wisdom and virtue. And Smith agrees. He has to. He couldn't maintain the respect of his fellow professors of philosophy or even the respect of common citizens if he would foolishly reject such a core teaching of every true philosopher we know of, whether religious or not. Speaking from a human-centered view, the real wealth of a nation is its people. But not just its people in any old condition at all. No, the real wealth of a nation is in the level of wisdom and virtue, the level of wisdom, love, and beauty in the citizens, the people of that nation. No other measure of wealth can compare. And we all know this. It's not controversial to suggest this because the wisdom traditions offer us wisdom. 
The common ground shared by such a wide range of traditions exists because that common ground of wisdom, love, and beauty seems to reflect reality. And these traditions make it clear that the job of a culture is to make good people so that the people and the culture live in accord with reality and so that nature and culture can thrive in mutuality. Some of the most interesting wisdom traditions equate the proliferation of laws with the breakdown of wisdom and virtue. The more laws we have, the more we must be neglecting the cultivation of wisdom, love, and beauty. Big government means big failure in education, and it comes as a sign that a culture has lost touch with wisdom and virtue. Smith accepts these core teachings, and yet he decides to start us on a road that brings us to where we are today. The sheer number of laws alone should tell us we've gone wrong, set aside all the other craziness. And Smith actually does see this as a choice between two roads. He writes about two roads. Now, first he sets them up. This is what he writes. Quote, We desire both to be respectable and to be respected. We dread both to be contemptible and to be condemned. But upon coming into the world, we soon find that wisdom and virtue are by no means the sole objects of respect, nor vice and folly of contempt. We frequently see the respectful attentions of the world more strongly directed toward the rich and the great than toward the wise and the virtuous. We see frequently that the vices and follies of the powerful are much less despised than the poverty and weakness of the innocent. End quote. Now, part of what Smith is doing is just trying to acknowledge our social nature. The subtle idea we find here is that we are such social creatures that our social context dominates us at first. And our task in life is to arrive at a liberation of our fuller consciousness. We rely on others and we naturally care if they respect or condemn us. Now, this doesn't have to become an encumbered thing. We don't have to live as if we need constant validation or as if we can't think or act in ways that challenge our social context. But Smith recognizes that we are nevertheless social or relational beings. How do we become properly respectable people? How do we live in such a way that others have a genuinely positive view of us? And on what basis will they respect us? On what basis will they have a positive or negative view of us? Now here, Smith recognizes a fork in our path through life. And this is what he writes, quote, Two different roads are presented to us, equally leading to the attainment of this so much desired object. The one by the study of wisdom and the practice of virtue. The other by the acquisition of wealth 
and greatness. Two different characters are presented to our emulation, the one of proud ambition and ostentatious avidity, the other of humble modesty and equitable justice. Two different models, two different pictures are held out to us, according to which we may fashion our own character and behavior, the one more gaudy and glittering in its coloring, the other more correct and more exquisitely beautiful in its outline, the one forcing itself upon the notice of every wandering eye, the other attracting the attention of scarce anybody but the most studious and careful observer. That's the end of the quote. And we know what happened, sadly. Smith encouraged us to pursue the wrong road, the road of materialism, the road of extrinsic, self-enhancing values rather than the path of virtue, the path of intrinsic, self-transcending values. We have inherited the consequences of this philosophical ignorance, this philosophical blunder, this tragic error that causes us so much suffering. Now, let's get very clear. If we have two roads, and one of those roads is the road of wisdom and virtue, what do we think we should call the other road? Now, we can call it capitalism, but that's just a euphemism. Clearly, the more accurate name is the road of ignorance and vice. Now, it might help us to understand how wrong we can go on this other road by considering an example. Now, obviously, we could just consider the proper name for this road, the road of ignorance and corruption, and we can look at the state of the world to understand that ignorance and vice can have catastrophic consequences. And so, concrete examples, I think, are going to be useful. But at the same time, I think we better save those for our next contemplation and consider just a few more gems of wisdom from Captain Capitalism. Now, in some ways, the best is yet to come. We're not, we're not done with this contemplation, but I just want to say, even in this contemplation, as we come to a close, some of the most interesting things that we can think through together in this inquiry into the dangerous wisdom and even the dangerous ignorance of Adam Smith, I think you'll really enjoy this coming journey. We need to try to arrive at a more holistic view of capitalism, and that's going to take some further contemplation, including the consideration of some of the shocking ways capitalism can infect our thinking and lead us into genuine evil. And I'm looking forward to thinking through all these things with you, because they can teach us a lot and give us a lot of insight into Smith's dangerous wisdom and dangerous ignorance. But at this point, we have the first element of his dangerous wisdom. And with that first element, we have in some ways captured the essence of the problem with capitalism, namely, that the road of capitalism, the road to riches, is a road of ignorance and vice. 
This is perhaps the most crucial element of the dangerous wisdom of Adam Smith. I think we've got a few elements of dangerous wisdom from him that we should consider. But we could see this one as the very heart of the matter. Now to say it again, because it bears repeating, it might even be annoying, but it bears repeating, that Adam Smith, Captain Capitalism himself, recognizes two roads. The road of wisdom and virtue and the road we call capitalism. And we're trying to begin to clarify why we can quite aptly characterize that other road as the road of ignorance and vice. Our examples that we'll consider in our next contemplation, I think, will help clarify that. But let's conclude this contemplation by considering another bit of dangerous wisdom from Smith that goes together with this first one. They're interwoven. And I think that'll help his dangerous wisdom shine a little bit more. And this little gem of Smith's dangerous wisdom makes it all the more incoherent that he encourages us to take the road of ignorance and vice. Now, here's the gem. Smith recognizes that the road he recommends can never make us truly happy and at peace. And he goes so far as to say it can suck our lives away. His discussion includes something that surprised me a little. Because Smith lived in the 1700s, But even though he wrote his book over 200 years ago, or I should say his books, Adam Smith basically describes people as pretty darn consumerist. Now here's what he wrote in the theory of moral sentiments. It's a slightly longer quote, so I'll let you know when we come to the end. Here's the passage. How many people ruin themselves by laying out money on trinkets of frivolous utility? What pleases these lovers of toys is not so much the utility as the aptness of the machines which are fitted to promote it. All their pockets are stuffed with little conveniences. They can drive new pockets, unknown in the clothes of other people, in order to carry a great number. They walk about loaded with a multitude of baubles, some of which may sometimes be of some little use, but all of which might at all times be very well spared, and of which the whole utility is certainly not worth the fatigue of bearing the burden. Nor is it only with regard to such frivolous objects that our conduct is influenced by this principle. It is often the secret motive of the most serious and important pursuits of both private and public life. Now that's the passage. In some ways we see Smith offering or trying to offer a nuanced diagnosis of this situation. The main diagnosis is that we waste our energy, our material and spiritual energy. We waste it chasing after stuff, chasing after trinkets that may bring some kind of utility to our life, but not a utility worth the candle. He tries to add nuance by basically saying that we like our trinkets not so much for what they do as for the coolness factor. And what he's doing is he's pointing out the contradiction between the use value and the exchange value of something. 
Now, this shows up in all sorts of ways in our modern lives. We're still stuck with the same situation. And it's astonishing how little we've changed since Smith's time. For instance, people in the horse world love their trucks. But I recently asked a fellow horse person to come and help clear up some rocks and other debris from the pasture uh, where that person's horse and some other horses are, are living as part of a land restoration project, try to heal the, the pasture. And this person has an extremely nice truck, must have cost at least $70,000, and they did not want to help. They, and they confessed because they didn't want anything to happen to their truck. Now, by coincidence, sheer coincidence, with, I never mentioned this at all to another friend, but another friend lives in the mountains near me, and we were spontaneously, we were talking, and he just spontaneously, a few days later, just, he came out with this. He said, you know what, people will spend $70,000 on a truck, and then they're scared to use it. Now, mine costs next to nothing, but I use it every day, and I love my truck. I love my truck, and it's far more useful to me than these expensive trucks are to people who waste their money on them. And they can't do anything more with my truck, with their truck, than I can with mine. It's just for getting around in. But I actually can use mine. So it's even more useful. Now, that was such a funny synchronistic comment. Clearly, this fellow rejected the capitalist contradiction between the use value of something and its exchange value. Now, similarly, an iPhone has very little usefulness beyond that of phones that cost far less money, at least for the majority of us. Now, I know somebody out there, maybe they like it because, uh, say, it's their primary camera. Or there's some other feature about it that makes it kind of uniquely useful to them, they may claim. But basically, people love the coolness factor. They love the design. And Apple spends a lot of money on design features that amount to uselessness. And people pay them for that uselessness. I got a glimpse of this because a friend of mine founded a tech startup. And he employed an engineer who had formerly worked at Apple. And that engineer worked with a small team of other engineers. They were all paid six-figure salaries, and they had one job, to optimize the feel of the click on the MacBook touchpad. We're not talking about the function of the touchpad. They did nothing regarding the functionality. Instead, this team of highly educated, intelligent, and creative people had a huge budget and were very well paid, ridiculously well paid, to optimize the feeling of clicking that touchpad. That's what they spent 40 or more hours each week working on. Maybe somebody at Apple read Adam Smith. But Smith himself finds this foolish. Now, granted, he's incoherent. We have to keep that in mind. The, the guy recommends that we follow this path, and yet... He also sees it as ultimately useless. He's not just saying that we ruin ourselves by spending money accumulating expensive trucks and Apple products and electric cars and so on. He's saying we waste our lives pursuing extrinsic self-enhancing rewards that can never make us happy. He directly acknowledges that wealth and reputation can never make us truly happy and at peace, and that only wisdom and virtue can do this. He does this in various ways, in various passages, but here's a relevant one. 
Here's the quote. Wealth and greatness are mere trinkets of frivolous utility, no more adapted for procuring ease of body or tranquility of mind than the tweezer cases of the lover of toys. And like them, too, more troublesome to the person who carries them about with him than all the advantages they can afford him are commodious. Now, that's pretty funny. That's the end of the quote. We're talking about tweezer cases, literally, a case that you can put your tweezers in. This is a popular item, it turns out. If you look up uh, on your favorite Internet search, you can see people had little, uh, just a little kit that would have a pair of tweezers in it, maybe a little nail file, a few other items, a toothpick, an ear scoop. That was a common. <laughs> and he's saying the pursuit of wealth and, and fame and power, those are trinkets, frivolous trinkets. The very things our culture spends so much energy attaining, that amounts to mere trinkets of frivolous utility and can't secure our true happiness and our true peace. And so Adam Smith encouraged us to follow a path of chasing mere trinkets, and he knew better. He goes a little further, saying that we're all in the same boat when it comes to our access to true happiness and peace. This is a kind of deep moment for him, because this is a professor of philosophy uh, rather than a philosopher, but this is like something you'd expect some sage to say, that, you know, it doesn't matter, happiness is here and now. And the richest person and the poorest person have equal access to true peace and happiness because they have nothing to do with money or power. And Smith admits it. Here's what he writes. Quote, In ease of body and peace of mind, all the different ranks of life are nearly upon a level. And the beggar, who suns himself by the side of the highway, possesses that security which kings are fighting for. That's the quote. If we take this suggestion from Smith philosophically in the fullest sense, which includes understanding it psychologically, then we can understand Adam Smith as saying all efforts to pursue wealth and power are misguided and that even the most powerful person in a society struggles in vain to obtain something a simple beggar can discover right here, right now. Now, there's a little more to that story. It seems evident that when Smith mentions a king failing to find what a beggar sunning himself by the road has already found, he has in mind one of the most famous stories in the philosophical traditions of the dominant culture, namely the encounter between Alexander the Great, the conqueror Alexander the Great, and Diogenes the Cynic, great philosopher, famous philosopher. Smith would have known this story very well, and he would probably have fully expected his educated readers to know that story too. And the story involves no ordinary beggar because it's Diogenes the Cynic. Now, since Adam Smith's time, this once famous story has become more and more forgotten. Now, here's what happened, in case you haven't heard it or want to refresh your memory. The great conqueror and monarch, Alexander of Macedon, the man we know as Alexander the Great. Now, he wasn't totally Alexander the Great at that point, but he was still Alexander of Macedon. He was the guy who was going to go and conquer. Now, he went to see the philosopher Diogenes and found him 
by the side of a road or a street. He's just laying in the sun. He's basking in the sun. Why would a guy like that go see a philosopher? You know, this would be like saying Elon Musk went to such and such a town and there's a philosopher just laying on by the side of the road and he drove up his Tesla and because he wanted to talk to this fellow. But uh, that wouldn't happen. It, it happened with Alexander because Alexander the Great had been trained in philosophy and he respected the original meaning of philosophy. At its highest level, philosophical training produces sages, and Alexander wanted to meet a man some looked upon as a sage. Alexander had gone with a small entourage, and as everyone gathered near him, Diogenes rolled on his side, and he propped up his head in his hand, and, you know, he set his gaze on Alexander, because he could see, this. well, this fellow's in charge, right? Everybody else is kowtowing around him. And the monarch greeted Diogenes, and he offered to grant him anything he wished. And Diogenes said, well, you know what, you can get out of the way. You're blocking my son. That's what you can give me. Now, Alexander seems to have been impressed with Diogenes, for the clear sense of his own dignity that he presenced at that moment, for his utter lack of deference to a monarch, and for his total disinterest in wealth, power, flattery, or dishonesty. Could have asked for anything. And he says, you're blocking the sun. Alexander at that moment saw a man with the kind of centeredness in the soul that Socrates supposedly had. He saw a man for whom philosophy was not about abstractions, but about realizing true wisdom, true joy, and true peace. And as Alexander and his entourage turned to walk away, some of the men began to mock Diogenes. And Alexander said to them, Say what you like, but if I were not Alexander, I would wish to be Diogenes. Now on the basis of of this sort of historical example, on the basis of the teachings of the wisdom traditions, on the basis of other history, on the the basis of his own experience, Smith recognized the truth in this little vignette. He recognized that only wisdom and virtue can give us true happiness and peace. So really what we find is that Adam Smith's dangerous wisdom goes together with his dangerous ignorance. Adam Smith says to us, there's a road to true happiness and peace. That's the road of wisdom and virtue. And then there's this other road, the road of capitalism. And this other road cannot provide our happiness and our peace. We all know this, or we can verify it for ourselves. But I think we should take the foolish road anyway. It's extraordinary. We need to look at more of the details in future contemplations. But the issue we now face is that once we let ourselves and our culture get onto that road, we are going down a path of ignorance, a path of all kinds of ethical compromises and even downright evil. And thus we face all manner of troubling and tragic consequences for that. Worse yet, we put ourselves through all of this for something 
that can never make us truly happy or at peace, can never make us truly wise, loving, and beautiful people. As I said, we're going to consider some examples of what happens when this style of thinking, this uh, this inferior road, this road of ignorance and vice, when when it's it has a style of consciousness to it, a style of thinking. Remember, Smith even described this. You know, it's it's a whole different character that it presents you with, a way of living. And we're going to consider in a little bit of detail what happens when it infects our minds and our culture. And as I said, I know we can just look at the disaster around us and say, well, yeah, it's obvious. But some of the details of some of the examples are quite illuminating. Now, obviously, it wasn't like at the time of Smith we were starting off with a baseline of wisdom. But Adam Smith, in part, represents and arises from a more widespread abandonment of wisdom in our culture. And that's significant. In the time of Plato, the time of Socrates, those cultures had people standing up and saying, we really need to follow a path of wisdom and virtue. We need to root our culture in wisdom, love, and beauty. Plato started a school that offered an education very different from the kind of education we get today. In some ways, we could say the first university was Plato's Academy. It was a university in the sense that it was an educational community oriented toward wholeness and dedicated to real knowledge of self and world as part of producing human beings who would be reliable, honorable, wise, loving, and beautiful. Plato wanted to produce real adults who might in turn become real elders and maybe even sages in some cases. He wanted to produce justice, happiness, and peace in his culture. And Plato recognized that wisdom, love, and beauty are the only true sources of justice, happiness, and peace for ourselves and our culture. And by the time of Adam Smith... We had mostly abandoned this road. So Smith naturally goes along with that abandonment instead of protesting. He could have protested. He could have said, hey, we all know that materialism isn't going to make us happy. We all know that we have already gotten on the wrong road. And if we do this thing that's emerging... It's just going to accelerate it. We have to get back on the path of wisdom and virtue. We need to think together about how to make that happen, how to stop these developments that I'm describing to you right now. Sure, they seem to have some nice things to them, but we know this isn't the road of wisdom and virtue. We can think of something better. No one's thinking about this. They're just doing it. And I'm describing it for you. And again, I admit, this seemed like there might be some advantages, but maybe... We need to sit and think about how to get on the road of wisdom and virtue. He doesn't do that. He doesn't protest. That's what Socrates did. And maybe Socrates taught Smith the lesson that if you do take that kind of stand, people are going to get mad. I don't know. For a variety of reasons, Smith joined with the other disciplines in the abandonment of wisdom. And we could say, in some sense, that Smith founded a discipline. And when he did so, he joined it up with the others. What we call science had already abandoned wisdom. 
It did so in part because, to the ego, it seems too hard to pursue wisdom. And so what had been called natural philosophy had to get a name change. You can't keep calling it philosophy, so they would call it science. By abandoning philosophy as it appears in the wisdom traditions, scientists didn't have to pursue wisdom. It's a lot easier to look through a telescope than it is to become truly wise, loving, and beautiful. It's a lot easier to classify birds by species than it is to really listen to what a bird has to teach us about how to be wise, loving, and beautiful. It's so much more challenging to learn how to live well with a bird than it is to kill it, cut it open, and say, now I know this bird. So Smith is not alone, and let's consider the major difference here between Adam Smith and Socrates or Plato or any number of other great sages. Again, Plato opened a school. He did that because he understood that the health and wealth of a culture depends on its ability to produce quality people. We could say it depends on the consciousness of the culture. What style of consciousness you're going to produce? Genuine philosophers like Plato understood that no culture should focus on making products and making profits, but instead must focus on making people, which means cultivating consciousness in the most vitalizing ways. A culture cannot truly flourish on the basis of material gain. Now, sure, it can do so for a period of time, especially if it has resources it can still exploit and ecologies it can still degrade, because that's just a way of deferring reality. Nature absorbs human ignorance. But eventually, reality catches up. A culture can truly flourish only on the basis of spiritual and philosophical development. The active rootedness in and cultivation of wisdom, love, and beauty. This applies to the individuals of the culture as well. And because of the interwovenness of nature and culture, it applies to the world. But Smith abandons this sacred commitment to making people, making culture, making the world in the richest, most vitalizing way, instead recommending the path of making products to sell, the path of making money. Smith provides a lesson in the fact that structures of power need a philosophical justification. That's important. It's part of the reason we're engaging in this contemplation at all. We need to recognize that this is all philosophical, even if it's exceptionally bad philosophy, philosophy that goes against our own wisdom traditions and even our own experience. Capitalism's immune system puts this bad philosophy to work every day to keep the pattern of insanity going. Capitalism's immune system functions in part 
by getting us to identify with capitalism and markets. It has hooked into our identity, hooked into our consciousness and our unconscious too. You know, I, I've noticed that conservatives, for instance, claim free market capitalism as a conservative value. Does that make any real sense? That's not a conservative value. As we said, we don't find it in the Ten Commandments. It's not on a hidden tablet. Nobody, somebody maybe picked up. I don't, I don't, where this comes from, it's ridiculous. And this identification process affects even those who may critique capitalism. Because capitalism has such a pervasive presence in our culture that we're basically forced to ask, well, what are we? What are we in the context of this? What might we become? Are we consumers? Are we workers? Are we capitalists? Are we more than capitalists? Are we more than what an economic theory says we are? Now, very few of us count as capitalists proper. Even many entrepreneurs are not capitalists proper. But if capitalism has hooked into our identity, hooked into our consciousness and our unconscious too, well, then what are we? Whatever else we might say in answer to that, because maybe you have a good answer, I know what I am, but whatever you might say, to varying extents, under the influence of capitalism, we are the consumed. Not the consumer, the consumed, all of us, even the capitalists, and even those who rebel against capitalism. Capitalism itself still consumes us all. Our very life energy, our time, our leisure, our thoughts. And that's one part of capitalism's immune system and how it's perpetuating itself. Capitalism's immune system also functions by convincing us we have no other option. Through the voice box of countless intellectuals, politicians, business leaders, journalists, and others, capitalism creates a sense of rightness and even a sense of inevitability about itself. And in part, this works on the basis of encouraging a narrow view of economics as a science. Not just any science, but a science with only the most foolproof and rational assumptions. Economics in the mainstream tries to convince us that capitalism is just reality or that it's the best reflection of or mediation of reality. The best option we have, with only nightmares as alternatives. Now that's nonsense. It's an excellent way to shut down our imagination and keep us cut off from our wisdom traditions and our own experience, but it's nonsense. Capitalism, in fact, seems distinctly at odds with reality, and Adam Smith knew it. The system we have is a consequence of really bad philosophy and really poor philosophical assumptions, and that bad philosophy brought us to our present situation, in which intellectuals and people in power take it as obvious that this remains the proper path to take, even as we see its terrifying consequences. And yet Adam Smith 
Captain Capitalism himself acknowledged that it is not the path of wisdom and virtue, and he acknowledged that only the path of wisdom and virtue could bring us true happiness and peace. But once we abandon that road, the road of wisdom and virtue, and we go down the road of ignorance and vice, all manner of insanity can ensue, including the degradation of the very conditions of life that we all depend on. My goodness, a recent study indicated that eating a fish caught wild from one of the rivers or lakes in the United States is as unhealthy as drinking contaminated water for a month. One fish. And that's because of capitalism. It's because of the ignorance and vice the capitalist path depends on and engenders. When we begin to add up all the negative consequences from capitalism, it far outstrips the evils of Stalin and Mao. No one wants to do that. People are really good at counting up the sins of Stalin and Mao, not very good at counting up the sins of capitalism. Through the style of consciousness that captured Adam Smith, we have continued to double down on a pattern of insanity, and that has allowed things to get worse and worse, on a scale heretofore never seen in human history, it's allowed this pattern of insanity to get further and further elaborated. We have to recognize what we're talking about here. We've got millions of people working 40, 60, 80 or more hours a week, and their incredible combined effort drives us all further and further down this road to perdition. Defenders of capitalism always ask, what's the alternative? Even caring, open-minded people wonder, well, what else could we do? The first thing we have to ask ourselves is, what's going to happen if we don't do something different? We can't sustain this, but come on, if we had the smartest, most creative people in our society, well, forget that. If we just had everybody in our society, instead of working as they are now, if they were working 20, 30 maybe 40 hours a week, on wisdom, love, and beauty. If we had everyone working to create a culture rooted in wisdom, love, and beauty, if we had everyone focused on producing truly wise, loving, and beautiful people, we'd be in a completely different world. If we want to know how we can have something better, not better stuff, not better iPhones and other junk that won't make us happy, but a better world. If we want a better world, we need to start asking people to think in that direction, to get on the right road. We need to start teaching better ways of knowing that will allow us to shift our style of consciousness out of the present status quo, the present pattern of insanity, and into something truly wise, loving, and beautiful. If everyone is thinking down the wrong road, if they're spending 40 to 80 hours a week on the road to perdition, then we're going to get there. And we seem to have gotten shockingly close already. We've already lost so many human lives and so many other of our kin. 
we can begin to understand all of this in a way that helps us find common ground. Whether we consider ourselves liberal or conservative, we can find this common ground and begin to heal the divisions in ourselves, our cultures, and our world. Well, just take a moment. Reflect on your highest values. What is it you think life is really all about? What is most important to you? What do you most deeply want others to know about what you hold dear, what you hold sacred? Is it family values of some kind? Do you value love? Do you value wisdom, knowledge, learning, and creativity? Do you value the teachings of a venerable tradition that helps guide your life? Is there some sort of moral order in the universe? Or at least, let's say, a moral order that you embrace fully. As real as real gets. Now, how does any of that relate to the way we organize our culture in the most practical sense? If we set aside all the propaganda and indoctrination that tells us we either accept capitalism or we have to accept Stalinism, if we set that aside and we recognize that we inevitably make a world together, then on the basis of our highest values, what kind of world should we make? When we think about it in this way, it seems shocking that any liberal or conservative would approve of capitalism. Considered objectively, capitalism fails to properly accord with the values which either liberals or conservatives hold dear. And it's crucial, crucial to understand that values cluster. We find a cluster around extrinsic self enhancing values. Extrinsic, that means coming from outside, self-enhancing, enhancing the self. Wealth, power, fame, conventional success, they all go together and they all belong on the road of capitalism, the road of ignorance and vice. We find another cluster around intrinsic, self-transcending values. Those values all go together, and they all belong on the road of wisdom and virtue. International polling, international polling indicates the majority of people on the planet prefer that second cluster of values, the intrinsic, self-transcending ones, especially on reflection. When people stop and think about what matters most to them, they pick the intrinsic, self-transcending values. You know what they are. And we find vitalizing common ground there because the majority of both liberals and conservatives hold intrinsic, self-transcending values like family, community, and righteousness, wisdom, compassion, and justice, benevolence, love, and the absolute dignity and sanctity of the individual. 
We hold those values in common. Why on earth wouldn't we make those the foundation of our culture and find ways to ensure that our economic, political, and perhaps most of all, our educational practices align with those values? Why wouldn't we try to root ourselves and our culture in wisdom, love, and beauty, in sacredness, reverence, and wonder, in family, community, kindness, justice? Now, we could do this without forcing any particular religious or moral views on each other. That's the whole point. We already share a common ground across traditions. And we can enjoy the benefits of skillfully cultivating that common ground as we also cultivate self-direction and freedom. We could create a world in which we put wisdom and virtue far ahead of markets and materialism. We made this world. We made this disaster. You can walk the path that makes markets and materialism central, or you could walk the other path. It's a choice. We're going to make a world either way. We're going to make people either way. What kind of people? What kind of world? That's a choice. And we are not making the right choice. We focus on gross domestic product. We follow self-help gurus of all kinds in order to get rich. We forsake democracy, and we view education as career preparation rather than the development of the fullest potential of each individual and the world as a whole. One of the most important things we need to remind ourselves when it comes to our highest values has to do with another crucial way the immune system of any repressive regime like capitalism works. It gets us to feel like we're in the minority and that any ideas we have that go against the system are misguided, unpatriotic, and even insane. The majority of people hold intrinsic, self-transcending values, at least on reflection. Keep in mind, capitalism seduces us to behave otherwise. The majority of people, though, don't hold those values. They're enslaved into them, seduced into them. The majority of people think we should tax corporations and the hyper-rich. The majority of people think we should have single-payer health care. The majority of people think most politicians do little good for ordinary citizens. The majority of people want democracy. The majority of people want to protect the ecologies we all depend on. But the politicians, the corporate leaders, the very wealthy, and countless others speaking as the voice of capitalism convince us that such ideas are ridiculous and that no one else holds them. Nobody holds them. That's what they make us think. It's like a planetary-scale gaslighting campaign. And we need to take a stand against it and recover our sanity together. We're not divided, not when it comes to this common ground. There's just a force trying to scare us away from the commons. It enclosed not only the ecological commons, but the spiritual commons too. We're shut out of it. We need to recover both and see them as not two different things. 
The way forward is in that common ground, the, the commons, ecological and spiritual. The way forward involves thinking together with the spiritual and ecological commons. That means thinking with our kin, not just our human kin. Thinking together rather than letting ourselves remain divided. Entering the commons rather than letting ourselves remain excluded. We need to think rather than letting those in power dictate to us how we will live and love, how we will work and create, how and what we will become, what our world will become. We need to clarify all these things a lot more. These are broad strokes. We're not doing something scholarly or academic here. We're trying to be careful. It's not sloppy. Broad strokes doesn't mean sloppy. And we want to get clear that part of Smith's dangerous wisdom is that he intuitively understood that we face this choice between two roads and ultimately between two worlds. It may feel very tempting to declare we can have both, that we can have capitalism and wisdom at the same time, but we have begun to try to understand why Smith was right in his sense that we face a choice between two roads, not one road that can reliably give us both wisdom and materialism. It's an opposition there. It's deep. It's in the soul. It's in the psyche. As I've said a couple of times now, I don't know if it's you're finding it repetitive or maybe it is perking up your curiosity. We're going to look at some concrete examples of how the capitalist style of consciousness, conquest consciousness, we could say, the capitalist style of ignorance, how does it play out? Just a way to consider how things begin to change as we follow the road of materialism. And I do think there's some good insights in them. I just think they're interesting. Miniature case studies. And we're going to reflect on some of Smith's other dangerous wisdom. One other real gem, which is his dangerous wisdom about class warfare. Oh, that's right. Adam Smith recognized class war as part of capitalism. He recognized that long before Karl Marx came around and started talking about it. So I love when I hear the people now, after going back and reading Adam Smith, I sure do love it whenever the uh, political, you know, the commentators, the talking heads, when they start complaining about class warfare. I heard some news clip recently. Some senator was talking about class warfare because somebody wanted to tax the rich. And how... <laughs> How funny it is that he probably didn't know that Adam Smith recognized this. As I said, I think the best is yet to come in this contemplation of the dangerous wisdom and dangerous ignorance of Adam Smith. I think we'll see some surprising ideas, some shocking facts, so do join us for that second contemplation, which again is going to appear after the release of our first dialogue in this series, and it's a dialogue with a rebel economist. So do stay tuned for that. If you have questions, reflections, stories to share about your experience with the dangerous wisdom or the dangerous ignorance of Adam Smith or the possibilities of life beyond the system we have, get in touch through dangerouswisdom.org. We might be able to bring some of them into a future contemplation. Until then, 
This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them.